Hey, good morning. Thank you, Mark, and to the worship team for leading us into God's presence. And to all of you who are here today, good morning, and welcome to the weekly gathering of Marymount Church. And I'm really thankful we can connect this way, but I'm really looking forward to connecting with you in person tonight and uh, on a Sunday morning. And we're working towards July 19th as we continue to prepare to restart in-person services. So stay tuned for more information on that. As you know, our summer series is called Rethink. We are working through some of life's biggest questions with a view to making sure we're living on a firm foundation in the middle of a world that feels like it's crumbling all around us. And last week, we looked at the question, what's the meaning of life? Now, I argued that this question really means a search for the truth, something that will not fade or change, that which we can build a firm foundation for life on. Now, we looked at the major philosophies of life and uh, briefly examined their worldviews and concluded with a look at the dominant worldview of the last 2,000 years, the teachings of Jesus. You know, I simply just took a few highlights from Matthew's gospel, and I hope you were able to see the freshness, the uniqueness of the revelation of Jesus that really has changed the world. And when you think of Jesus and the ethical and the moral demands of his teaching, his definitions of love and sacrifice and humility, justice, truth, repentance, mercy, faith and obedience, just to name a few, what you see is his authority and his kingdom call has made an unparalleled impact on the world. Jesus challenges every system of thought. So the next logical question I want to deal with today is, who is Jesus? In today's message, I want to explore a man who is the most famous, noteworthy, misunderstood, misrepresented, and debated person in history. I want to do this by asking seven questions, and then I want to offer four possible conclusions to this question. So, let's dive in, all right? Uh, First of all, what did the Jewish prophets say about Jesus? And we've got a few that we're going to look at today. Moses, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, like me, from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So he is going to be a prophet that is to be obeyed. Now David continues the revelation and the the peeling back of the curtain on who Jesus, this Messiah, is going to be. He says, The Lord says to my Lord in Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So we now put the puzzle pieces together, and we see he's to be a king and a priest. Now Isaiah the prophet, famous Christmas time message, chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So he came as a child, but he is God and he rules an eternal kingdom. Now a little bit later in Isaiah chapter 53, he says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone, our own, gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He came to heal us from all our iniquity. So this is what the Jewish prophet said, and it starts pointing to the Messiah. Now let's ask a second question. What about the wise men of the ancient Near East? In Matthew's Gospel, we, in chapter 2, we read that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who's been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And a little bit later on in verse 10, it says, The star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You remember the story. Well, gold is a gift for a king. Incense is a gift for God, and myrrh is used to embalm the dead. So the Magi knew his rank, and they knew his destiny. And who else in all creation had a star to announce their birth? So that gives us another piece of the puzzle, but you've got the ancient Jewish scriptures, you've got the wise men of the ancient Near East. Now, what did Jesus do with his life? So we find out that he was sinless. He was perfectly obedient to God's ways. His teaching, as we've already looked at last week, stands alone in all of philosophy and literature. His miracles show his mastery over his creation. He rules over the disciplines of chemistry. He turns water into wine. He rules over the discipline of physics. He walks on water. He rules over the discipline of biology he multiplies fish and bread, and he rules over medicine by healing and raising people from the dead. His death was announced in astronomy by an eclipse and echoed in geology by an earthquake. His willingness to shed his blood for our freedom totally redefined humility, friendship, and love. And his resurrection defeated death and inaugurated the promised new creation. What a perfect life, a perfect example. He simply did what he said. So that leads us to the fourth question. What did Jesus say about himself? Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the term, I am, in a very distinctive way, and he uses that term seven times. And he says 
that I'm the bread of life, which means he's saying he's the nourishment for the human race. When he says, I'm the light of the world, he's saying, I'm the illumination for the human race. He says, I am the gate, which means he's the judge. He says, I'm the good shepherd, which means he's the protector. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life, which means he's the guarantor of the future. And he's the way, the truth, and the life, which means he's the source for all direction. And finally, he says, I am the true vine. I'm the life giver. Now, this I am may sound kind of cryptic, but if you go back to Exodus chapter 3 and the episode in the burning bush, Moses is kind of confused and says, well, wait a minute, what's your name? And God says, my name is I am. And so Jesus, when he uses that name, he's claiming a name of God. He's saying, like, I'm God. But he also says, before Abraham was, I am. Now that's, you almost feel like he's bad grammar, but he's really saying, I is that I is. He's continuously, eternally existent. And that's exactly what he's saying. And then when he's arrested, they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he goes, I am. And the text says, they all fell down. So this is a powerful word. This is a powerful statement. Jesus knew who he was. He knew he was God. He knew he was eternal. And he made these promises over the human race that are just extraordinary. So that's what Jesus said about himself. Question five is, what did the early followers of Jesus say about him? So now we go to the Gospels, Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, starting in verse 36. While they were still talking about this, this is the disciples in a room together talking, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, the doors were locked. He just... He just beamed through the wall, and he said, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking like they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is me, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. They saw him, they touched him, and they knew he could read their minds about the ghost thing. So in John, John chapter 20, we have another episode where he appears to one of his women followers, Mary, and she was confused as to who he was. And then he says to her in verse 16, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. She's obviously grabbing him by the feet, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said all these things to her. So in her case, she heard the voice that she knew. Now in John, in the beginning of his gospel, chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, John declares 
that Jesus is God and he's the creator. And he uses language which essentially goes back to the book of Genesis to make that point. And so he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So Jesus is God and creator. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul uh, talks about Jesus with this amazing little poem. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Catch this, verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things means the whole universe, including us, including the buildings we're in, including everything around us. He's holding it together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Because God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, which he shed on the cross. So Jesus is creator, he's redeemer, and he actually holds everything together. He is, in a sense, the force, the unifying force in the universe that Einstein was looking for. It's Jesus. So, let's go to Hebrews. This is an unknown author. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but it wasn't Paul's, another witness. And it says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In other words, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. He's the exact representation of the the Father, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So now we learn he's holding everything together by his word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So Jesus is God. He's the creator and he sustains the universe. Now, that sounds to me, these first five questions, that sounds to me like the greatest of all time. Doesn't it sound to you like that's the greatest of all time? So question six is, okay, so what have other great people said about Jesus? So let's take a look at some of the people that we consider to be famous start with Thomas Jefferson. He said this about Jesus, the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. The purity of his moral precepts, the eloquence of his inculcations, the beauty of the apologies in which he conveys them. Not bad. Let's look at Mahatma Gandhi. He said this, Jesus was one of the great teachers of mankind. And I'm going to take a little issue with that later on, but just hang in there. A man who was completely innocent, 
offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. Napoleon Bonaparte, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself, we founded empires. I love how he makes himself equal with all those dudes. But what foundation did we rest the creations of our genius? It was upon force. In contrast, Jesus Christ founded an empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Albert Einstein says this, I'm a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrasemongers, however artful. No man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Theseus and other heroes of this type lack the authentic vitality of Jesus. Maya Angelou. I believe Jesus Christ was the most courageous of persons because he dared to love. And how about Vincent van Gogh? Christ alone has affirmed as a principal certainty eternal life, the infinity of time, the nothingness of death, the necessity and the raison d'etre of serenity and devotion. He lives serenely as a greater artist than all other artists, despising marble and clay as well as color, working in living flesh. That is to say, this matchless artist made neither statues nor pictures nor books. He loudly proclaimed that he made living men immortals. So finally, what about Jesus' followers today? That's our seventh question. Are you, are you getting amazed at this Jesus? Are you, I mean, can I have an amen somewhere out there? Because this is just, this is just scratching the surface, folks. Even today, followers of Jesus testify to his all-surpassing greatness and his goodness Jesus is speaking people today, calling them into his kingdom. Many hear his voice and do the healings he did. Happens in our church all the time. Multitudes have testified to meeting Jesus in near-death experiences. Look, folks, thousands of Muslims are having dreams and visitations from Jesus. Did you know that the fastest-growing group of followers of Jesus in the world today is in Iran? There are now over 2 million people following Jesus. They call him Isa al-Masi. There are over 1,000 movements of this massive move towards Jesus in the world today, and the average is almost 100,000 baptisms in each movement. Muslims, Buddhists, and even Jews are seeing and declaring contagiously that Jesus is the true Messiah. Now, there's one more follower of Jesus of recent times, Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. He's a pastor. Uh, he's now gone to glory. But a few years ago, he made a testify, he testified and made a testimony to the surpassing greatness of Jesus. So I want to end our look at Jesus with this video. Take a look. <laughs> 
Bible says, my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a well-trained of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Terror couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. I wish I could describe him to you. I mean, isn't that amazing? He, he's, like, like, like was said earlier, he, he can't contain him. You can't describe him with words. He's, this is almost an impossible exercise for me to try to convey to you in 30 minutes who Jesus is. But this is who he is. And he was thought, he was in eternity past. He was thought and prophesied. He came, he lived, he was fully aware of what he was doing. His followers fell in love with him. And even today, the greatest people in the world, many of whom are atheists, 
testify to the greatness of Jesus. He just has had that kind of impact on our world. So to bring this message into focus now, as we've looked at who Jesus is, then there's four possible conclusions that people have come to about Jesus. And sometimes they come to it with only part of the data. Sometimes they come to it out of what they were taught growing up, what they heard in university, whatever. But these are the four ways that the world mostly sees Jesus. Number one is a myth. Number two is a manipulator. Number three is a madman. Or number four is Messiah. Let me explain each of those briefly. The myth says that Jesus is a legend of fabricated history. The manipulator said Jesus knew he was lying to fake people out. The madman idea is that Jesus was just deluded as to who he was. He was a lunatic. Nobody could be who he said he was. And then finally, four, having left all these other options, he's the Messiah, that he was God, he is a king, he is the Lord of the universe. And so I want you to notice here that I'm not allowing the opinion, the option, I should say, of a mentor or a, or a great teacher. Because if he is just a great teacher and he didn't actually do everything that the scriptures say he did, then you can't really take his teaching. You, know, you just cannot, this is not an option. So either he's a, he's a myth, he's a manipulator, um, he's a madman, or he's Messiah. So let's look at each option, all right? First, uh, the myth option. How do we know that Jesus existed as historical fact? Well, virtually all scholars who have investigated the history of the Christian movement find that the historicity of Jesus is certain. Scholars differ on the beliefs and the teachings of Jesus as well as the accuracy of the details of his life that were captured in the Gospels of the New Testament, uh, but reject the theory that Jesus never existed. So, in other words, scholars totally are lined up. This is a real historical human person. Now, non-Christian contemporary sources at the time of Jesus, if you, if you say, well, that's just the New Testament, that's, that's Jesus' book. Okay, well, let's look at non-Christian sources from the first century. There's two I want to briefly tell you about. One is a Jewish historian named Josephus. In his book Antiquities, chapter 20, Josephus writes, the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ, whose name was James. So he's talking about James the half-brother of Jesus and Jesus, as a historical fact. The Roman historian Tacitus, in his Annals, book 15, chapter 44, describes Nero's scapegoating of Christians after the big fire in Rome. He writes that the founder of the sect was named Christus. He was executed under Pontius Pilate. And the movement, initially checked, broke out again in Judea, and it even came to Rome. So the existence of Jesus, the existence of the Christian movement, absolute, certain historical fact. Now let's look at a more recent uh, historian, Pinchas Lapide. He's a Jewish historian, and he wrote a book in 1977 on the resurrection of Jesus. And here's what he says. He says, I accept the resurrection of Easter Sunday not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as a historical event. 
he goes on to say that Jesus will be heralded as Messiah by the Jewish people, but not until he returns. In other words, he's in full agreement with the Old and the New Testament scriptures, uh, except that he hasn't come to that faith right now. So Jesus is most definitely not a myth. So let's move to number two, a manipulator. How do we know that Jesus spoke the truth? Now, this type of conclusion accepts the historical reality of Jesus and his statements, but charges Jesus with manipulating people and lying about the kingdom and the things of God. In other words, Jesus faked his death and planned an elaborate hoax to entrap the world in a false religion. Now, of course, it would be impossible for him to be a great moral teacher and at the same time be such a manipulating liar. So his teaching either stands anointed or it's proven false. So let's take a look. His prophetic statements about the religious elite were validated. They actually conspired and killed him. His predictions of his death and his resurrection multiple times were validated, as were hundreds of details of his instructions to his disciples, like go over there and find a donkey and bring him over here, or go down in the city, you'll see a man with a jar of water, and he'll tell you where we're going to have the Passover. His prophetic predictions of the destruction of Jerusalem were fulfilled in A.D. 70 when Rome destroyed the city. And his cursing of the cities of Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida were fulfilled as well. All three cities were destroyed by an earthquake. His promise of the Holy Spirit was fulfilled on Pentecost, as were his prophecies of persecution of the church. Now, in Islam, it is denied that Jesus died on the cross. Instead, Judas, the bad guy, does a last-minute substitution in his place. At the end of Matthew's gospel, there's this plot among the Jewish leaders who bribe the guards to lie and say that the disciples stole the body. Now, these stories are invalidated by the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus alive, who wrote the New Testament. There's no way, if this was a fake, uh, that, that it would have ever lasted because the apostles never gained a cent for their allegiance to Jesus. And all but John were executed for their faith. Now, people may lie to gain great benefit, but they will not be killed, allow themselves to be killed for a lie. So Jesus is most certainly not a manipulator. Now let's look at option three, a madman. How do we know Jesus wasn't just deluded? So this view proposes that Jesus was a lunatic, that all his claims to be a king and God, worthy of worship, were simply delusions. There were a lot of messiahs in the day who said they were the messiah, like dozens of them, and most of them raised up some followers and a lot of them were killed and nothing amounted to a hill of beans. What these folks say is that Jesus said all this kind of stuff, but he was mistaken and he really amounted to being nothing more than an idealistic traveling preacher who had no influence beyond a few country bumpkins. Now, if you look at that view, you, you then have to face the self-evident wisdom of his teaching. You also have to face the way he died, forgiving his enemies, surrendering his spirit on his own terms, and look at the 
Roman centurion who was there who said, surely this was the Son of God. But you have to deny all that. You have to deny his miracles, his healings, his resurrection. And you have to deny the historical fact that it wasn't just a bunch of country bumpkins, but a huge movement resulted from the preaching of his disciples. And, and might I add, his disciples were ordinary men. They, that Greek word there is idiotes, okay? They were ordinary guys, fishermen, tax collectors, and they, they were scaredy cats. But they saw the risen Christ and started preaching like lions. So you have to get over that problem. And it also denies the unmistakable authority that Jesus commanded among people, opponents, his disciples, and through the centuries among the many intellectuals, philosophers, and scholars who followed him, claiming him to be the smartest man who ever lived. Jesus is most certainly not a madman. And that brings us to option four, which is the Messiah. And my question here is, what would we expect from a world-saving Messiah? He's the God-man, born of a virgin, sent by the Father to live a perfect human life, to teach and demonstrate the realities of the kingdom, to heal, cast out demons, defeat evil with total authority, total superiority, to offer the perfect selfless sacrifice for human rebellion, and then to rule as king over the universe. So we need to see that what he did and who he was and all the things in here and and around that I've shown you today, that it's pretty much what you would expect. It's like the visitation of Superman. It's totally what you would expect. And it would be well beyond your imagination to figure out that he'd be born of a virgin and he'd die on a cross instead of you and me. So it brings us to the end of today's message where we've got to rethink our assumptions about Jesus. If, if for you he's a nice teacher or if for you he's, he's a moral, meek dude who toured around Galilee in the first century, like... You've got to revise that, dude. You've got to revise that. He is not that. He is so much more. He is, this is the sheer love that just pours out of the story and life of Jesus. This is how much he cares for you. You may know him, but you're not excited about him anymore. But he desires your love. He desires your allegiance. This is how much he is for you. This is the incredible inheritance he wants to bless you with. This is the wisdom he wants to give you. Brothers and sisters, this is Jesus. King, prophet, priest, God, man, creator, lover of your soul, lover of my soul, ruler of the universe, savior. Look, I don't expect you to change a lifetime in your head in 30 minutes. But you got to reconsider who Jesus is. He is coming back and he will judge the living and the dead. I, I got to encourage you if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, I want to just encourage you right now. Look at who he really is. Get on your knees and just say, 
I'm sorry. I completely underestimated you. I made it up to what you would be in my own mind. I'm really sorry. And I don't know where to go from here, but I'm going to start by changing my thinking. I'm going to rethink Jesus. Now, we're going to spend the rest of the series unpacking what that could look like with all kinds of meaty questions. But right now, you've got to decide, okay, what I thought is probably not right. And what there is in Jesus is probably a whole lot more than I ever expected. And if you've been following Jesus, maybe you've been a little casual in how you've sized him up. Maybe he's kind of like a mascot or somebody who prays or gives you the good things in life. And maybe it's just that sliver of your life that Jesus has. You know, work and family and sports and entertainment and, the, and my little sliver of religion. That's unacceptable. That's unacceptable. He wants the whole enchilada. And if that's something you haven't come to yet, I want to encourage you this week to think about who Jesus is. And if you're on fire in love with him, I, all I got to do, I got to tell you guys, if you're in love and on fire for him, then go and tell everybody about him. That's all you need to do this week. But for, for all of us, let's take a moment this week. It's going to take you 18 minutes or less. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. Read that and weep. Read that and say, oh Lord. Read that and if you identify a couple things, put them into practice. Just put them into practice. So I'm going to close with prayer. Father, I just thank you for sending this amazing Jesus to us. Thank you, Jesus, for fulfilling all that was called for you to do. What a sweet, what a sweet, humble, meek, challenging, brave, awesome warrior you are. You pulled it off. And Lord, light this community on fire with the truth of who you are. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look forward to seeing you tonight with worship, and uh, God bless. Uh, I'm going to lead you now into the final song, which is done by a, a group of worshipers from around our region, and it's a perfect tribute to Jesus. It's a song that's called Cornerstone. You know the song, but he is the cornerstone. And I can't think of a better way to finish this message than to have you experience that and have communion as families. We'll see you tonight. God bless.